final session. Love this. My perspective for the past several nights has been nothing but ladies in the front row here. So to see some of the men up here, that's what I'm talking about. Hey, uh, I guess with some noise, maybe some applause, how many enjoyed worship all week long here at camp? I have to tell you this, if you did not enjoy worship, you are not going to enjoy heaven because that is all that takes place in that realm. We will worship our creator. We will sing in unison with the angels, every tribe, every nation, every tongue will be worshiping God. So if that was a strain for you all week, you're going to have a heck of a time in eternity. So here we begin. We're back at it. I'm going to try to make this as practical as I possibly can. I flipped messages around. Remember, I began the week by saying my three concerns for your generation. But in fact, they're actually my three concerns for the Christians around the world. Remember the first night we accomplished that the desire for the church and the Christian as of late, at least in America, is to be culturally relevant. So we take our cue from the culture or from the world, and that's where you find certain worship sets where churches are turning in their venue to a concert more than a place where people gather to glorify God. Then, of course, we find ourselves taking our cue from the culture with how we conduct ourselves, what's considered cool, what's popular, how we should fit in from the very music we listen to, to the shows we watch, to the clothes we wear. All of it has us trying to be like the world. But God has called us to be set apart. That's the word sanctification, that we are set apart so that God can work his image within us so that he can place us back in proximity with the world That's why Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 about being salt and light are so crucial. What does it say? Let your light so shine before who? Men, that they may see your what? Good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I actually witnessed that. When people notice that your good works, now I don't want to define good works, I just want you to know that good works are showing the world how God works and often how God looks. They will not have an understanding of who God is unless they see him in you. Now, this is not a man works-based philosophy. This is get out of God's way and let him do what he wants to do. Remember my prayer? Father, make much of yourself through me today. That's it. And then you Yield to the Holy Spirit as he governs and guides your steps, as you allow him to take over your tongue in the words you say. If we can edify, uplift, and encourage just by the words we choose, I guarantee you your world would change. Just by choosing your words wisely. Now, no doubt, you won't have any words to share if you're not in the word of God. To speak blessings to be a life giver. I guarantee you, just in this group right here, if you begin encouraging each other, encouraging each other, and then encouraging each other even more, begin noticing the giftings in each other. That was the first time this young lady sang all week. Am I correct or did I miss something? 
That was amazing to see so much gifting on stage. Abby? Abby. And we encourage Abby, right? We encourage Abby. Last night, we talked about my other concern, which was, I believe, many people who claim Christ, which is the reason they get the name Christian, I believe with all my heart that they have a false salvation because there's no fruit. The word born again means born from above. It means God has given you new life in your spirit. So you have a new life regenerated And then we believe because we said a prayer somewhere along the way to accept Jesus. And then we go out in our lives unchanged, untransformed. And I'm saying, wait, we're missing something here. Christianity is surrendering to Christ that his nature would overtake my nature. And I know this. The only way this can happen, again, guys, is to get into God's word. My third concern is that too many Christians today are scripturally deficient. Now, if we're going to memorize, if we're going to study, if we're going to read, let it be God's word. Let it be God's eternal word. That if we're going to spend time memorizing anything, it should be God's word. So as practically as I can put this, beyond a camp week, my challenge up front is for you to find yourself in a personal devotional time. Now, it might be awkward because you might not have one previously, but when you first sit down, get a good devotional book, talk to Pastor Tyler, Pastor Austin, Pastor Gary, talk to them and ask them for a devotional that they recommend and begin there. Whether it has a date in it and you go from date to date, get yourself a Bible. You need a personal Bible, not an app, an actual Bible. And here's why. In the actual tangible scriptures, you can write in them dates, It can become a journal for you to remember something the Lord spoke to you in your heart. You document it and you have no idea that later on in your life, when you go back through the pages of that Bible and you see certain notes that God spoke to you at certain times, you have no idea how impactful that will be. Get yourself a Bible. When you go to a basketball practice or a soccer practice, if the coach saw you show up without your shin guards and your cleats, You're not practicing. Yet here we are, at times, showing up to church or youth group without our equipment. This is everything. I actually remember being your age, and as a young adult even, I remember seeing my mom with a Bible, right? It was a big, thick, brown Bible. And it literally had pages torn out of it. You could see pages were kind of hanging out the side. It was all ripped up. It was so beat down and battered. And I remember considering this Bible and saying, why doesn't she get a new Bible? Why doesn't my mom go buy a brand new Bible? That thing is so worn, so torn. And then something happened in our family's life. And I talked about it the first night I was with you, how we lost a brother. My mom and dad buried a child. That was in 2005. He was only 28 years old. I don't know if I told you this, but four months prior, maybe I did, he just had a baby girl, just like I just had a baby girl. So the weight of that loss upon my mom and dad, 
But I'll never forget the scene. Again, I reiterate, they were able to stand before an assembly at a funeral where we're eulogizing a lost life, a brother, a father, and to my mom and dad, a child. Yet they were able to stand before their peers and say, we believe God is good. Three words, God is good. This does not feel good. This does not look good. We believe God is good. And I remember being mesmerized by that, the peace that my mom and dad had. It was so real. It was so tangible. It was so attractive. And then it dawned on me that they had an authentic relationship with God. They knew Jesus. And though the times were tough, they had a peace about them because they knew the author. And what I realized was my mom's Bible that was broken and battered, she had spent so much time sitting with her Savior. And that's the reason when trials fall, and they will, tribulation comes, and it will, you need to know the heart of God that he can be trusted. If you don't know his heart in his word, when that trial comes, you will. And my fourth concern, maybe I should have done a message about this, that your age group going off to college and coming back are falling off, which means you're not going back to church. You're making your, up your mind and saying, you know what, this church stuff's not for me. There's a trend that the young adults of today are leaving the church in thousands. Why? Because faith was never real to them. They never knew God. The moment you taste and see that the Lord is good, you can't leave them. But you got to get that for yourself. This is no longer mom and dad's faith, young ones. I pray that this week has become a catalyst to some of your young lives. God wants to use you in mighty ways. Some of us are still fighting it. When you give yourself over to God, you stop trying to control your life and you begin to surrender as the lady sung in that one, that talent show that I was a judge in and you recognize you're broken as the men sang those two words, brokenness and surrender. You watch out world because when God is able to use you, that's revival. So here's what Charles Spurgeon had to say. I love this quote. He said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. This is the Bible I bring when I teach everywhere I go. You know why I bring this Bible? Because it's small and I can hold it. My Bible at home is a thick Bible, a study Bible. It was the first Bible sent into me when I was in prison. I spent so much time in that Bible writing notes, journaling, writing commentary, the things the Lord laid on my heart. That Bible to me was my treasure. It was my everything. One day I came back to my area, that Bible was missing. You better believe. My heart began to race. I love this Bible. And then my peers came up to me and said, Matt, relax. We know your Bible's missing. We got it. It's in a safe place. Trust us. I didn't know what they were up to. They came back about a couple hours later and gave me this Bible, my Bible, Yet it was wrapped. You know what they wrapped it in? This is so amazing. My peers decided, actually I should, I should use the word allegedly. That's a word in the legal system. They tore up a bed mattress. They took the plastic off it and they wrapped my Bible in it to protect it. I still have that wrapping on my Bible. It's gray. 
Every time I see it, it's a reminder of where I was and the peace that God gave me in a place of chaos. And it's ironic that that is the mattress where I found rest physically and they wrap my Bible in it because that's the place where I find my rest spiritually. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It reads this. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Okay, let's stop and define inspiration. The word inspiration in Greek means God's breath. So all scripture is given by the breath of God. We just sang the final song, didn't we? It's your breath in my what? My lungs. And if it's his breath in my lungs, then he deserves every breath that I take. All scripture is given by God's breath. One definition for the word salvation that I love. Salvation means deliverance. Salvation means preservation. My favorite definition of salvation in the Hebrew is room to breathe. When you're boxed in, when you're in a tight space, when you feel the peer pressure around you, when you lean into salvation, spiritually and emotionally, you have room to breathe. And that's why all scripture is given by God's breath. When I visited your main sanctuary recently, I talked about the importance of God's word. I used God's word as I broke down the internal unity of it, if you recall this, the external validity, the eternal prophecy, and eventually the transformational potency. I want to take my time through this again to reiterate. God's word is perfect. From Genesis to Revelation, 66 books in one, written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years, different occupations, shepherds, kings, statesmen, tax collectors, all contributed to this book. Over that amount of time, it is an impossibility for two people in this room right now to sit in opposite ends and write about the same theme and come to the same conclusion and almost have it dovetail. Yet somehow, some way, this inspired word of God is perfect. Not a single contradiction. There is internal unity within it. Then I talked about the external validity. All of history points to the Bible. The Bible confirms all these historicities, this archaeological dig site, palaces. The Bible confirms them. Now, I had a conversation with one of you guys, and we talked about faith is more about, it's the evidence. It's not blind. Faith's not blind. Faith is bound to the Word. And the Word is the most validated piece of literature in all the world. Eternal in its prophecy. One third of this book is prophetic in nature, which means God said it and it happened. But when you get to certain chapters in the Bible and you go, this is inspired by God, sometimes it's so boring. You might turn right now with me to Genesis chapter five. Go there, Genesis chapter five. You turn to a chapter like Genesis chapter five and you read this genealogy. And as you go from name to name, You just want to get out of chapter 5 and enter chapter 6 as quickly as you possibly can. Did you just read that? Were you like, what is this all about? So there's a point to trace in a genealogy, but watch this. Because God's word is inspired, God's breath, this genealogy, which many go, wait, am I tracing it? Where am I going back to? Is it going back to Adam? What's the point? Does it lead to Jesus? Yes, it does. 
But it's deeper than that. God's word is so amazing. His final prophecy to mankind was Jesus from the beginning all the way to Revelation. Every story, every sacrificial system, every ordinance, every tradition, everything points to Jesus, even a genealogy. Because if I read it as it is, it says, and Adam beget Seth, and Seth had Enosh, and Enosh had Kenan and Kenan had Mahalalel and Mahalalel had Jared and Jared had Enoch and Enoch had Methuselah and Methuselah had Lamech and Lamech had Noah. And then I go to chapter six, but then I realize these names have meaning. And when you break down each name, Adam means man, Seth means appointed, Enosh means mortal, Kenan means sorrow, Mahalalel means the blessed God, Jared's name means shall come down. Enoch's name means teaching or dedicated. Methuselah's name means his death shall bring. Lemek's name means the despairing. Noah's name means rest or comfort. When you string it together, it says this. Man appointed to mortal sorrow, that's sin. The blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest, comfort. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, where even a boring genealogy points to Jesus Christ. Not to mention the transformational potency that it changes our souls. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. Now, we are a people who pursue the things that are profitable. We invest into things that are profitable. Now, if the Bible is profitable, Why aren't I investing more time, more energy, and more resources into it? If it's the only thing that will echo beyond my temporal life, the word of God, that's what John wrote, that the individual who does the word of God or who knows God's will, he abides forever. Why aren't I spending more time in the word of God? Jesus said this, ready? Matthew 6, 19 and 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Ready? Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you value in life, your heart follows. Whatever you're valuing, whatever you treasure, your heart is going to pursue it. The question is, why don't we cast our hearts into the heavens and begin to pursue Jesus. Because Matthew 16, 26 says, what does it profit a man to gain the world yet lose his soul? What would you give in exchange for your soul? I found my past life giving up my soul for so much rubbish. Everything in the world that I gave my soul over to returned to me pain and shame. So I realized the only thing I should invest in, guys, not only should I invest in the youthfulness you have, taking your youthfulness and saying, God, use it. I don't want to waste it. I want to invest into it. Investing into God's word. Because look, it it don't matter how much gold somebody may have in their hand if they don't have any God in their heart. Like the true riches is having the Holy Spirit within us. The richest man in the world is not the one with the most gold. The richest man or woman in the world is the one who hears from God. The individual who lends an ear to God. And the only way for God to get into your heart, look at me, is through your ear. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by. Come on, say it nice and loud. Faith comes by. Hearing. 
hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by how you hear and how you hear is from the word of God. So here's the practical application. Would you make a commitment before you leave camp, write it in your journal, write it in your phone, that you would spend more time every morning with God. I prescribed to the morning, I'd face God before I face my day. Something about the morning time, the stillness, the silence, that God's voice is the loudest. Before my day picks up pace, at least I learned that the hard way in prison. When all hell would break loose at 6 a.m. in prison, if I waited to start my day with that, it would have devoured me. There was fights at 6.05 a.m. for a toilet. They're pulling out weapons. And I said, if I wait for that to wake up, this place is going to destroy me. So I said, I'm going to get up earlier than hell. And I did. I would roll out of bed. I would get to that table that God prepared for me. And I would spend time in the scripture. And it was in the scripture where God began to move in my life, move in my heart. And I began to hear his voice out of his word. Nothing weird about that. I read his word. That's his voice. Grandfather lost a watch. He called all of his grandchildren in. He said, listen, I can't find my watch. The first person to find it gets a reward. So the kids ran off. They began to flip over couches. They're looking behind curtains. They're literally running all around the house. They all return empty-handed. The next day, the youngest grandchild, he comes up to his granddaddy and says, here you go, and hands him the watch. The grandfather's amazed. How did you find it? In his little voice, he said, it was easy. I got up earlier than everybody else this morning, and I listened for the tick. See, when you get up early enough, before the chaos of the day, when you make a commitment in your young lives to learn the scriptures, like I said to the young ladies, be fierce women of God, learn the scriptures inside and out, memorize. If we can memorize the latest songs, we can memorize God's Word. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That's the word teaching. It simply means teaching. It's what Pastor Gary does every Sunday. It's profitable for our spiritual life because we teach it. Correct teaching produces correct learning. And why would we not allow the God who created us to mentor us? I asked you guys earlier, maybe two nights ago, Who's mentoring you, the culture or the scripture? Who's mentoring you, the world or the word? And let me just clue you in on something. Teaching and studying is not just for pastors. You should be teaching people the same word that I'm teaching people. Now, the difference is a pastor enters an office. Sometimes you get a pulpit or a stage. But that does not mean you shouldn't be learning the Bible, memorizing it, quoting it, and teaching your peers it. Listen, I did not go to a seminary to be here. I went to a cemetery to be here. Literally, locked up with grave clothes on, grave circumstances. I have no formal education. In the world's eyes, I do not belong here doing this. But God says, I do not govern my economy by the ways of the world. I pick and choose who I want to use. People come up to me all the time. It's it's humorous. Pastor Matt, what is your stance on the dispensation of salvation 
according to the Baptist Calvinist methodology of the movement. And I go, dude, I am not a theologian. I just love Jesus. See, it does not matter how many letters are at the end of your name if there is no word in your heart. Knowledge that does not change one's life is useless. Write this down. Knowledge that swells the chest often shrinks the heart. It's not about just reading scripture and memorizing as much as I can, absorbing as much information as I possibly can. It does not matter if it all stays in your mind. It must make its way to the heart. It must enter the heart and begin to lay out in your life. That's why it's profitable for reproof. This word is not just a rebuke. This word is evidence beyond dispute. This word is reinforced proof. So if you add enforced between re and proof, you get this word, reinforced proof. It's what we talked about the other night, young man. The reinforced proof of God's word. When you understand that faith in the word of God, the substance of God's word is the conviction that you can stand on. But again, the reality is a lot of Christians don't know the scriptures. So when they're asked about their faith, they can't give a reason or explain why they believe what they believe. Conviction begins like this. It first hurts because I know I'm wrong, I'm off. But the more conviction sets in, the more it begins to change, transform, reconfigure the things that are off and wrong. I love conviction. Conviction can equal evidence. When you feel the word of God strike you, that's the evidence that this is real. If I'm reading from a comic book up here, nobody's going to feel that. Mommy told Johnny, don't touch the strawberry jam. Johnny, listen to me. Do not touch the strawberry jam. Mommy left kitchen, came back, and there's Johnny. Johnny, did you touch the strawberry jam? No. Johnny, I'm going to ask you one more time. Did you touch the strawberry jam? No. And his head dropped. Johnny, did you touch that strawberry jam? His head dropped a little lower. No. Johnny, one more time. Did you touch that strawberry jam? His head dropped, and right there on his shirt was a big red strawberry jam stain. (laughs) See, sometimes that's how conviction works. Sometimes it doesn't hit me. No, that's not for me. It comes back at me again. No, that's not for me. It comes back at me again. God's speaking. No, that's not for me. And then right there, the evidence. I see that that was for me. I needed to hear that. There was a man named David Hume, 18th century British philosopher rejected publicly historical Christianity. He was an actual antagonist towards the Christian movement. Everybody knew it. He saw a a friend hurrying on the London streets and he asked him, where are you going so quickly? The friend shot back, I am off to hear George Whitfield preach. David Hume responded, but surely you don't believe what he preaches, do you? The friend said, no, I don't, but he does. In other words, there are people in your life who might not believe what you believe, but you better believe that they'll believe whether or not you believe what you believe. There are people in your life who do not believe what you say you believe, but you better believe that they'll believe 
whether or not you believe what you believe. In other words, is this real or is it not? The word of God is either real to me or it's not. And that's why it's profitable for correction. Correction is setting something straight like a cast. Anybody ever broke a bone? And they cast you, right? And the cast is to protect the bone as it heals. That's what the word of God does. When you place your life into the word of God, you are saying, I'm broken and Lord cast me, help me and heal me. And he begins, as we talked in the morning, he begins to restore the soul. This is the word of God. It's the cast. It finally moves into the instruction in righteousness, right? This can be defined as the process of training a child. There's something about our nature. It's stubborn. It's rebellious. It needs to be broken. It needs to be bridled so it can be used. The definition for the word meekness is appropriate here. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. When you hear the word meekness, the world says that's weakness. But in God's economy, meekness comes with the imagery. I love the Greek language. It comes with the imagery of a wild stallion, right? That's out of control. It's bucking. It can't be tamed until a handler gets a hold of that wild stallion with all that power and actually does something. It breaks it. Begins to train it. Then they can saddle it. And after they saddle it, guess what they can do? Ride it, use it. Same horse, same power, but something entered that equation. You know what entered that equation? Brokenness. God needs to break us before he can use us. Brokenness in God's economy is beautiful. When you feel like, man, God can't use me, I'm broken, I'm battered. I'm like, no, they're the types of people he uses. He uses the individual says, I got nothing to offer. He goes, yeah, exactly. I got everything and I'll offer it to you. It's our brokenness, young ladies. God is not looking to use your flawlessness. He's looking to use your brokenness. That's how he trains us. The moment I stand up here, he goes, I got it all figured out. I no longer need you, Lord. I can train myself in righteousness. That enters me into self-righteousness. So I stay broken. I stay vulnerable. I stay open. I stay honest. I find an accountability partner in here, a friend, a teacher, a counselor, And I get vulnerable. I say, I'm struggling with this sin. Find somebody you trust that won't judge you, but they'll come alongside of you and they'll walk with you. I don't care how deep or how dark that sin is. Bring it to the light. Be broken in it and let God begin to instruct you in righteousness. That's the past we talked about in the morning, the past of righteousness. Finally, here's the purpose. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Very quickly, you ready? That the man of God or the woman may be mature, thoroughly furnished or with character for every good work. What are the good works? Showing the world how God looks. Showing the world how God works. You might say right now before you leave camp, I feel unqualified. I don't feel prepared. And I go, that's exactly the place you need to be in. Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and realized, you ready? They were untrained and uneducated men. They marveled. They were astonished. Ready? Here's the punchline. And they realized they had been with Jesus. They saw two fishermen preaching boldly. They were astonished. They're not from our rabbinical schools. 
They didn't get raised in our formal program. They didn't go to our seminary. And they were astonished because they saw boldness that could not be provided by anything in this world. I ask you, because it is clear, they made the realization, those guys been with Jesus. Here's my question as we end. When you leave this camp, will anybody know you've been with Jesus? Mom and dad, will they know you spent a week with Jesus? Peers, teammates, co-workers this summer, will they realize you've been with Jesus? Because the only way to have public impact for Jesus is to first have private intimacy with Jesus. There's my flat-out challenge for you. That Saturday morning, tomorrow, would be the first day of your devotional life. That you would get up and spend time with God. That you would get intimacy in your walk with Christ because he wants to use your young lives. I cannot express to you my gratefulness, my humility. I cannot express to you how humbled I am to be able to address your young lives. My prayer and my wife's prayer is that we were able to minister to you, that we've left you with things to consider out of the word of God. I want to say this. My name is Matthew Mayer, and I'd rather stand alone with Jesus than sit in a crowd without him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this time at this camp with these students in your word and through worship. I pray you begin to form and fashion your son Jesus within their hearts. Your Holy Spirit would convict them, challenge them, comfort them. And as they depart, Lord God, they would leave nothing behind. They would take it all with them. Lord, they would spend time with you intimately, daily. Lord, that you would use them greatly, that you would make much of yourself through them. Lord, I pray a blessing upon them here and now. And as we leave, let us leave, Lord God, in surrender and brokenness. In Jesus' name, amen.